2: Okay, Christophe, so we are, actually, you tell me where we are. We are now in Varsenare. And where is
1: Varsenare? A little place near Bruges.
2: So we're close to the good chocolate.
1: Yeah, but there's good chocolate everywhere in Belgium. <laughs> we're close to Bruges, yeah. And we're
2: in front Myself and fellow journalist Christoph Muhl are in Belgium because I'm on a quest to find out the scale and size of motor doping in cycling, cheating by hiding a motor inside a bike's frame. To do so, I first need to figure out how Femke van den Driessche took the career-ending risk of having a motorised bike with her at the 2016 Cyclocross World Championships, despite having the cycling world at her feet. She was caught, becoming the only person to be banned for having a concealed motor. But there must be more to this story. So many hows, so many whys. How was she so careless? And why was cycling so very keen to move on and forget the scandal? I've tried so many avenues to get hold of Femke because I've got so many questions that I feel only she can answer. But so far, I've been unable to locate her. Sat in my boxy hotel room in Arlst, just a few kilometres from Femke's home, I sit down and once again watch the Tiefel interview Femke gave Sporza back in 2016 after the motor was found. It's an interview I've watched many times before, the images, the reddened cheeks, her blonde hair tied up in a bun, the big clunky ring on her left hand finger, are almost scarred in my mind. But, until now, I've largely ignored the giant sat to her right, a balding man dressed in a chunky knit cardigan with a show of concern on his face. I then turned to Het Newsblad, one of Belgium's biggest websites, and there he is again, this time by himself, crying, intercut with shots of Femke dabbing her eyes, in front of a roaring fire. It's Femke's father, Peter van den Driesche. In the days after the discovery, every frame containing a sorrowful Femke also included him. Perhaps he would be available and willing to talk about that day in Zolder. Perhaps I've been asking the folk of Arles about the wrong person. It's not Femke I need to speak to, but Peter. Where can I find Peter van den Driesche? I'm Chris Marshall-Bell, and from Stack, this is Ghost in the Machine, episode 3, cats, pelicans and pigeons. So far on Ghost in the Machine, it's been a wild journey. We've discovered that mechanical fraud, better known as motor doping, has been a spectre plaguing and worrying cycling for the best part of a decade and a half we've heard intriguing anecdotes and addressed the most explosive of allegations. We've also learned that, for those who love cycling, the thought of hiding a motor inside a bike is completely enraging, an offence to their sense of fairness, far worse than conventional forms of doping.
3: This is a kind of further I I never could imagine that a sportsman should do that.
2: But many feel that although Femke is the only cyclist to have ever been caught with a concealed motor in their bike, the sports watching public may have been duped multiple times over by far bigger names.
0: He is their man, but just ridden away at the moment. How far has he made that gap? Well, it's big enough that the cameras can't oh, see. It. John,
4: spinning it up, That's Chris Froome. Is he going to be beaten on this day by Contador, Mano a Mano? The
2: Parador. This is magnificent. This but no proof has ever been found, and everyone accused, including Fabian Cancelara, Alberto Contador, and Chris Froome. ...have all defended their record... ...repeatedly. If I can't get hold of Femke... ...then it's Peter who I need to pin down. I quickly learn... ...that Peter has a bit of history... ...in the saddle himself. Born in 1969... ...he too competed in cyclocross... ...and aged 27... ...won a regional championship. A year later... ...he finished third... ...in the National Cyclocross Championships. He was pretty good... ...and clearly passed on... ...the cycling talents... ...to his kids. But he never made it... ...as a professional instead setting up his own roofing business, Dakwerken in Driesche, in 1989. When the company went bankrupt in the wake of the Great Recession at the turn of the last decade, the court file stated that it had pivoted to retail in car repair. This was despite Dakwerken literally meaning roofing in Flemish. Two months later, the company was set back up with the same name, and so it remains to this day. As Christoph and I sit in a pub, hey, we're in Belgium, what else are we meant to do? He notices something as we scroll through the company records.
1: Here you can see branch, that, that they mean what can they do, what will they do, yeah. what are they allowed to do. And there you can see there is all, also a part, um, car repair, and uh, they also deal in bicycles. But that's strange because I didn't I didn't know that. It's, it's new for me, it's a new element.
2: In fact... The roofing company lists 24 different activities, but there's also, like Christoph points out, the wholesale of bicycles and the manufacturing of bike parts. That working in Van Driessche also repair consumer items and have a licence to operate gyms and fitness centres. In the course of my inquiries, I'm gifted Peter Van Driessche's phone number by an acquaintance. I want to ask him how he felt about a motor being found in Femke's spare bike. And so I hit the dial button but he doesn't answer. Let's try this over one, one more time. I try a few more times, but still, he doesn't pick up. No. I then send him a WhatsApp message, but he doesn't respond. It's clear, Peter van den will not speak to me. But I'm not out of the van den just yet. You might remember Joss Smets, the former technical director of Belgian Cycling, telling us this.
3: The well, same thing, I hope that... Uh the environment of, of Femke will be more careful with her than with her brother, huh? because her brother Niels was uh, penalised and uh, suspended for two years for uh, doping.
2: Wanting to find more out about Niels, I turn to Facebook. I immediately see that his cover photo shows five men posing with their backsides on shore. What I find most interesting though is that Niels's Facebook page highlights that he races pigeons and that he's won various national championships. Now. I don't know about you, but I know absolutely nothing about pigeon racing. But I know a man who does.
4: My name is Didier Marlier. I graduated as a vet in 1990. And uh, since uh, 1993, I'm more or less implied in the racing pigeons uh, world.
2: It's time we learned about pigeons with Didier. But you didn't expect that. And trust me, there's a reason we're heading off on this tangent. Didier is going to give us a crash course. Aside from racing the small birds as a hobby, he is the head of racing pigeon medicine at the University of Liege. If only I had known about that course when I was applying for university. I wonder if there's a department for beer, fruits, and watching cyclocross. Mm. Anyway, Belgium, according to Didier, is the heartland of pigeon racing.
4: Pigeon racing has been defined, at least in Europe, as a sport in which you have one starting line, but a lot of finishing lines.
2: How it works is that pigeon owners, called pigeon fanciers, breed their pigeons at home in shelters that are called pigeon lofts. Two days before a race, fanciers take their competing pigeons to a society, and then all the pigeons are put into a truck and driven to the start line. On the day of the race, the pigeons are released and it's raced back to their respective lots. Most races are around 200 kilometers in length, roughly seven times the distance of a cyclocross race.
4: We have special microchips on the pigeons to register the time at which pizza are home. We know the distance between the releasing sites and our loft. And then we can easily me- measure the mean uh, speed that the pigeon has done during the race.
2: So even though one pigeon might live a few kilometers closer to the start line than another, The winner is the pigeon who returns at the fastest average speed, not the one who returns home first. It's even more complicated than cycling's general classification. Didier tells me that the biggest pigeon race, the Tour de France of pigeon racing, takes place on the 1st July weekend every year. Pigeons start in Barcelona and have to fly 1,200 kilometres back to Belgium. And boy, are they fast. They are
4: perhaps released, I just say, at 6. At six in the morning, and the, the winning pigeons will perhaps be at home. Just say at uh, nine, at nine in the evening, they will do perhaps the the one uh, dozen uh, to uh, hundred kilometers in twelve hours. It's incredible! Incredible was this pigeon. What these pigeons are able to do?
2: Incredible indeed. These tiny pigeons, weighing not much more than five hundred grams, travel from northern Spain through the whole of France, and back to Belgium, at an average speed of 120 kilometres per hour. That's 75 miles an hour in old money. A cyclist with a hidden motor in their bike wouldn't even average 50k an hour. These little pigeons are rapid! As impressed as I am, the main reason I've got Didier on the phone to me is not because I want him to shed light on how good Femke's brother Niels is in the pigeon racing world, but because whenever I mention this niche sport to people during my research those in the know all scream one word to me, doping. You see, it turns out that pigeon racing attracts as many cheats as cycling does.
4: I think that as, as long as you have races, you have money, as long as you have money, you have doping. You know, it's just the same in horse, in camelets, in dogs, and also in pigeons.
2: Didier has written extensive research papers into doping and racing pigeons. He's the expert. Pigeon Racing's Mr. Anti Doping.
4: The doping problem in racing pigeon is as old as the racing pigeon itself.
2: I wasn't expecting that. What Didier tells me is that doping is a stain on the sport that will probably never truly be eradicated. A bit like cycling, then. Corticosteroids, anti inflammatory drugs, and anabolic steroids are to pigeon racing what EPO, testosterone, tramadol, and yes, maybe motors. After bike racing.
4: quite sometimes a pity to see that there are countries that does not do their best to fight doping in pigeons and other countries, such as Belgians, who do their best.
2: We have seen no evidence, nor heard it alleged, that Niels, or his father Peter, who also races the small birds, have doped pigeons. Yet when I started this investigation into Femke van den Driesche and motor doping and cycling, I did not expect to have segued into pigeon doping. But it's that kind of story, and there's more to come.
0: Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
2: I return to Niels's Facebook page and I see an image that stops me in my tracks. Is that who I think it is? I click on the photo, clearly taken at a Pigeon Racing Awards ceremony, and see that the older gentleman posing with Niels is tagged. Yeah, it is who I think it is. It's Nico van Mulder. Nico was the family friend who Femke said was the owner of the bike found in the pits. Yes, the one with the motor found hidden inside. Nico backed her up. Many doubted that claim and you can understand why there'd been questions. For starters, the bike was Femke's size, had her name printed on it and Nico didn't even know how to activate the motor. I'd already been informed that Nico's best friend is Femke's father, Peter. And now I learn that Nico also shares a pigeon loft with Niels Femke's brother. But more than that, he's Niels's pigeon racing mentor. Just who is Nico van Mulder? I search the internet for more information and find a 2016 report from the Belgian newspaper Het Last News. It points out that Nico, like his friends of Andendrisch's, was also a cyclist in his youth. The newspaper then reveals that Nico was suspended from bike racing in 2004 because he, wait for it, punched another rider during a race. I now fully understand why so many people I speak to keep telling me that they think Femke's background was chaotic. Surely she'd have better judgement than to have Niels accompany her to races, a man with a chequered history in the sport. The big question now is, although the doped bike was Femke's spare one in the 2016 World Championships, did she ever use it in other races? I need to explore the streets of Arst a city 30 kilometres to the west of Brussels, where she was born and raised. So Christoph, we're walking through the centre of Aalst now. Just tell me a little bit about this town. Uh, Aalst is
1: a very special city. Uh, when you say in Belgium you live in Aalst, then they say, oh no, oh my God. <laughs> Why? It's because of the people are very um, different than in other cities in, uh, in Flanders or Belgium. Um, they are very open um, what you see is what you get. So they are always honest, but they can, yeah, that can come in, or how do I say it? Really hard. If like, uh, but like, exa- that's
2: like all Belgians, you no? Know, because all Belgians are very direct and straight
1: no, to the point. No, there's a big difference. For example, in Alst, if they don't, if they don't like you, they say, uh, You're shit, I don't like you.
2: Note to self, don't annoy the people of Alst. As we wander the cobbled historic streets, Christophe regales me with a story from 2011. Five years before Femke became Sport's biggest news story for a few days, Alice was in the worldwide headlines for an altogether different reason. A video had emerged showing the town's Catholic mayor engaging in a rather saucy sexual encounter with her boyfriend. Perched over the medieval walls of a Spanish castle's turrets, her lover, a successful surgeon, surveys the landscape from up high. With his shorts hovering around knee-length, he and the mayor enjoy the vantage point in a manner like few others, if any, have ever before. The video, shot by some amused Russian tourists, was posted to a dodgy corner of the internet in 2007, but then found its way to social media four years later, branded as a sex tape. According to Christoph, though, the people of Arsht reveled in the absurdity of it all, and the mayor's popularity soared it makes me wonder how they reacted to Femke getting caught with a motor. But the town's biggest attraction is not controversies, hard to believe as that may be. It's actually a three-day winter carnival held every February. Here's Christoph again to tell us about it. What are we watching, Christoph?
1: We're watching a video uh, from Aalst Carnaval, the biggest uh, party in town, uh, in February. 100,000 of people from all corners in Belgium, come to Aalst to laugh with anything, with anyone and anything.
2: I'm getting the impression that Aalst is a place that embraces, not lawlessness, but taboo-breaking every once in a while.
1: And then uh, it's a big party in the city, but also that day you can laugh with everything, with anyone. (laughs) If there is a police officer... You can say, hey mate, what are you doing? Go home, you don't belong here. They won't do a thing.
2: We continue to watch the parade. Paper Masha sculptures of figures from politics and pop culture are marched through the center of the town. Thousands of people are dressed up in all sorts of wacky costumes. And do you often dress up as well? Are, are you no. one of the main characters? No. I'm not one of the main characters. You disappoint no, me, Chris. Yeah, sorry, sorry. I thought you were gonna be this pelican or this parrot <laughs> or someone. I was in between the pelican... I was, I was in the pelican, but you cannot
1: see
2: <laughs> I believe you. <laughs> anyway, I go back to watching footage from the 2016 carnival.
1: The thing about carnaval is you have to laugh with every, everyone and with everything about what happened in the past months. And Femke was, of course, one of the stories that time. And the funny thing is that now we are watching the video with a lot of people around the circuits to watch and see people get dressed and dumb and, and or dancing. But Femke was there too, to laugh with herself.
2: It's true. Just seven days after being caught with a motor in a bike, Femke attended the carnival with her two brothers, despite being the butt of all jokes from her fellow local residents. As Christoph and I scroll through the internet, we find a report from Belgium newspaper Het Nieuwsblad where Femke is named as one of the main topics of discussion during the Aalst Carnival, next to terrorism and Queen Fabiola. What is the
1: headline, please? The headline is Terroristen, Femke van den Driessen and Queen Fabiola, Aalst Carnaval is ongoing. So those are the three main topics uh, during Aalst
2: Carnaval. So we've got a terrorist, the Queen and Femke van den Driessen. She was big news. Yeah, that was the top three. <laughs> Remarkable. It's a sign of her character that Femke joined in the festivities, and she even went in fancy dress. With her blonde hair in a bun, she dressed as a cat with whiskers painted onto her cheeks. It seems quite strange to be out in public just days after her fall from grace in this playful and outlandish way. Does this speak of youthful nonchalance, or was she simply just confident that the carefree people of Arst, her community, wouldn't really be bothered about her transgression? My assumption that Femke was humiliated and her life ruined by this case is being called into doubt. Maybe it was like water off a duck's back for her. It's becoming quite clear that we cannot pigeonhole Femke sorry, couldn't resist into the box of an ordinary cyclist from an ordinary family or, for that matter, an ordinary place. But what about now, almost a decade on? How is she regarded? A figure of fun? An enemy of cycling? A fraud? A fraud? Or just another character in our colourful history. It's time to head to a local bike race to find out. From April to October, every city, town, and village in Flanders, Belgium, will host at least one, often several more, local cycling races called kermesses. There are junior, amateur, and professional races. So, Christophe, is this a major part of Belgian culture? This is a part of Belgian culture. This is
1: the heart of cycling. Uh, this is what it's all about. You see 100 amateurs racing, everyone's outside, the sun is shining, everyone is watching.
2: There really are. I buy a cold beer from a local bar and stroll around the race circuit. Let me tell you what I can see there. There may 200, 300 people. There is a van that is opened up into a shooting range. Basically, it's called a shooting club where you can win teddies and all sorts. I take up position by the barriers, ready to see the riders on their next lap. I can feel the passion. You know, if you want the, the, the ultimate football culture, you would go to England, you would go to Anfield and Liverpool, or you would go to La Bombonera uh, to see Boca Juniors in Argentina. If you want to experience real cycling, you come here to Flanders, to Belgium. This is cycling. As well as immersing myself into the local cycling culture, I'm also here to work. Who remembers Femke? Femke van den Dris. I don't know who she is, no. Do you remember in 2016, a Belgian cyclocross girl had a motor in her bike? Mm. Nah, no, 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 I'm sorry, no. Femke van den Driess. What? Femke van den Driess. What does that mean? It's a name. Oh. Do you know who she is? No, no, I'm sorry. The next man I speak to recognises her name, but that's about it. Yes, I know her a little bit. Uh, cyclocross? Yeah, and is there a story that you remember about Femke? Maybe no. <laughs> you really don't know, do you? No, I know the name. Finally, I meet someone who does properly recall her. Femke Van Den Dries. Do you know who that is? Yeah. Who is she? A uh, cyclist. No. Um, yeah, she's a cyclist. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember why she is famous? Yeah, her bike problem. A uh, problem. <laughs> a breakthrough. What about the next person, I ask? No. no idea who? No, clue. She was the girl who had a motor in her bike. Ah, uh, OK. Remember the name now? No. The only <laughs> one I know with that is Fabian Cancellara. <laughs> Cancellara again! Remember episode two where we heard about that infamous video of him at the Tour of Flanders? The mention of motor doping seems to conjure up his name more often than it does Femke's. She seems to be largely forgotten, which surprises me. It might be eight years since Waiya spilled out of Femke's bike at the Cyclocross World Championships but although she may not be very well remembered the truth remains that the repercussions were seismic. In assessing the magnitude of Femke's wrongdoing we need to know whether a doped bike in her possession was a one-off. Is it possible that she might have used this bike with its concealed motor on multiple occasions before the ill-fated World Championships and if so were others doing the same? When you look back Now, are there any points when you thought maybe this was happening from Femke in different races?
3: Uh, Afterwards, you can, looking back, and then we thought, yeah, that race and that race, probably she's already using it.
2: Rudy De B was her national team coach when she was competing for Belgium. He has no doubt that Femke used the motor in previous races.
3: I can remember two races that I... For me now that I can tell she using it before before the world.
2: What were those races?
3: Uh Kopenberg and the uh, European Championships. You
2: think she won the European Championships with the motor?
3: I, I'm not sure about it, but
2: why was there one time when there was a acceleration? Or?
3: No, it was not not especially but If you know Femke before, and and, and her other races, it was, yeah, it was not that spectacular.
2: For Femke's own national coach to be saying this is quite the indictment. Let's quickly retrace her rise to prominence. At the start of November 2015, after a few impressive results, Femke was being spoken about as Belgium's rising star. The Koppenberg Cross is one of Belgium's biggest cyclocross races, held every year on November the 1st. Riders have to do eight laps, each featuring the mythical Koppenberg climb. The couples are slippery, the gradients are hideously steep, and there are 15,000 spectators, most of whom are several beers deep in getting stuck into some frites and meal. When Femke raced the 2015 edition, she was the one to watch. OK, we are now watching the infamous Koppenberg Cross race. Christoph, what are we watching? Because it's quite something, this. Yeah, this is the Koppenberg climb. It's
1: super steep. Don't know if you've been there one day, but it's super steep. And Femke goes really
2: fast on it. She's like 10 metres ahead of them yeah. all. Yeah, yeah. She goes and goes and pushes. You can actually see that she's going faster than what some of the men go. She is absolutely flying. Just to give you an idea of this, the, 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 the climb is what, maybe 300 metres long? And within 15 seconds, she's got a lead of 7 seconds lead in about 10 metres.
1: Yeah, she stays in the saddle. The others are pushing their pedals, they're dancing on their pedals, but she stays in the saddle. It's
2: quite an astounding piece of evidence, I think. It's worth reminding ourselves that watching a rider stay in the saddle proves nothing. But Femke maintained her advantage and finished second at the Coppenberg Cross. And understandably... She was pretty damn chuffed.
1: I didn't expect
3: to perform here. It is certainly special that I finished
1: second here. It certainly gives me confidence. But on the other hand, I hope I can keep this
2: form. Now, there is no evidence that Femke used a motor in the Coppenberg Cross. But as we just heard, Rudy thinks she did. Six days after that race, Femke travelled north to the Netherlands for the European Championships and claimed the biggest victory of her career. But one rival later told the press that everyone had a strange feeling about Femke's bike. Wanting to know more, I reached out to her Club Up Matt No Drugs teammate Elena Valentini.
4: This year she was really, really good, so I started to, to look at what she was doing. And um, yeah, for me it was, was strange because she really never warm up at the races. And um, I say, yeah. Maybe oh, she don't need it, uh, but uh, when we, we try maybe the loop before the races, uh, uh, she, she looks normal. But then uh, when the race started, uh, she was completely on another level and uh, yeah, was uh, something strange.
2: The day after she was caught... Femke was asked about the Kopenberg Cross and European Championships by Christoph in the interview for Sportse.
1: Femke, do you understand
2: that people are now questioning your
1: performances from this year?
2: If I had the bike with the motor,
1: I would have had a more consistent season than I have had. I always peaked for those periods. Videos are now popping up of you flying up the Koppenberg.
4: That was a peak. And the week after, it was the European Championships, and I peaked for that.
2: (laughs) It's tempting to say we should take Femke's word for it. No evidence has ever been presented that she used a motor in the Coppenberg Cross and the European Championships. The UCI then tell me that there were videos and photos of her using the very same bike in other races, identified by specific marks on the seat tube and, get this, the control button on the handlebars, which was visible in some photographs. Is it possible she was on the path to becoming a cycling pariah even then? Was this poor judgement on her part? Or was Femke just really a victim in all of this? Jos Smets, the big dog at Belgian Cycling back in 2016, is certain of that.
3: This was something that was done her environment. And her environment was her family. Yeah.
2: It's entirely plausible, as both Jos and Rudy suggest, that Femke's ban was just another chaotic episode in the world of the Van den Driesches. Apart from denying ownership of the bike in that one interview with Christophe and Sportzer, the day after the doped bike was discovered, Femke has never spoken publicly. Neither has her family, or the family friend Nico van Mulder, who claimed, along with Femke, that the bike containing the motor was his. We still don't really understand why they were so careless, nor the extent of the scandal. All through this inquiry, I've been conscious that at the centre of the story is a young woman, still just a 19-year-old teenager at the time she was caught. So what about today? Eight years on? How is Femke? She's now in her late 20s. What's she up to? How did getting caught for motor doping alter the course of her life? I finally acquire Femke's phone number, and I sweat about calling her. But in the back of my mind, I know that the amount and type of questions I have for her are just too much for a phone call. If we're going to get the answers we need, I must sit down with her. Christoph lives only a couple of streets away from Femke in Arlst. He proposes that we just turn up and knock on the door. I'll be honest, this scares me. In a decade of journalism, I've never doorstepped anyone. And I have absolutely no idea what kind of reception we would likely get. What if Peter, the imposing figure of her father, is the one who answers? But I'm now too far into the story. And I know it's my only way of getting answers.
1: Hello. Oh, yeah, you is there a man from the family? The mother the Yeah, the brother.
2: Can you ask them? Yeah, yeah. a... Thank
1: you. Okay, so wh- I think that was the housekeeper of someone, someone who's doing some jobs in the house, cleaning, I guess. Yeah. Uh, they closed the door and they uh, said, I'm gonna ask if anybody wants to come. I didn't say my name. No, course not.
2: You've been listening to episode three of Ghost in the Machine. Subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss any new episodes. Ghost in the Machine is a stacked production. It is presented by me, Chris Marshall Bell, the podcast's general classification contender. It was written by myself and David Bradford, the sports director of the series. Sound design is by Tom Wally, the podcast's lead-out man. It was produced by Pete Donaldson, the Road Captain. A special thanks to Super Domestique Christoph Mull, And a thanks also to the Free Swan Years, Finn ranson Charlie Morgan and Katie Baxter. Chapeau.
1: Gene is a Stack
3: production and part of the Acast Creative Network.
2: Hey,
0: it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince—they've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods—all at fifty to eighty percent less than other
2: high-end brands. And the best part?